You are listening to the UCHRI podcast. This is Allison Anunziata, Research Programs Manager. Today we bring you another talk bit in our series interrogating the concept of civil war, a robust series that over the past year has resulted in conversations on aerial warfare, digital interfacing, biomedicine, political civility, among other diverse subjects, layer by layer revealing all this concept has to offer. In February 2019, Deepesh Chakrabarty, professor of history, South Asian languages, and civilizations at the University of Chicago, visited UC Irvine to keynote a conference on global studies, and we caught up with him to talk about environmentalism and civil war. Chakrabarty is well known for his incisive and field-defining interventions in post-colonial studies. His 2009 essay, The Climate of History, Four Theses, published in Critical Inquiry, established him as an equally important voice in theorizing climate change from within the humanities. In that essay and subsequent publications, Chakrabarty has grappled carefully with the challenges posed by the Anthropocene to human and planetary life. This talk bit between Chakrabarty and UCHRI director David Theo Goldberg circles social antagonisms by putting post-colonialism in dialogue with post-humanism. You know, when you're thinking of civil war, what are you thinking? What are you thinking about? How does it reach and register you? Uh, civil war. Is Did you get it? Yeah. Well, I think of civil war as um, <clears throat> war kind of between citizens. I mean, in other words, people who are not naturally antagonists or, and wars that are not about religious denomination. Right. So civil in those two senses. Um, and even what kind of wars do I think about if I have to think civil war? So I kind of so thinking not about the past but the coming possible civil wars <laughs> in the context of climate change, I really feel if it is true that <clears throat> the inhabitable parts of the world will shrink inside countries, between countries, then there will be there will be bound to be more human movement. And certain kinds of wars, whether you think from a like Trump's idea of a border wall, whether you think of that as it is a form of civil war. Um, racist fights. Um, also wars that are civil wars like some of the wars in Africa where climate is a factor, not the only factor, but is a factor. So I actually think a climate-stressed world is going to see more of conflicts, and a lot of conflicts which will not be between nations, but will be inside nations, at the borders of the nations. Um, I don't see how we're going to avoid <clears throat> that future uh, if we're not going to act quickly and collectively on climate problems. And there's no sign that the governments are all, you know, uh, moving with alacrity on this question. So it seems to me that we are bound towards a future that will be more conflict-filled and some of those, or many of those conflicts will be like civil wars. Small and big. 
And within the context of this, this shifting conception of, of civil war, um, yeah, as we put it, uh, sort of contested and contesting conceptions of, of life and what it is to live and what it is to be in control of life and so on, uh, what is a dialogue between the post-imposthumanism and the post-imposthcolonialism amount to or look like? Yeah, there's, there should be more of that dialogue than there's been. Mainly because, you know, <clears throat> so 1988 is the year when, as I was saying, James Hansen makes his deposition to the Congress. And I think the same year, or maybe the year after, Stuart Hall and Homi Baba and Isaac Julian uh, come together to do this conference on the fact of blackness. And there's no conversation between the two moments. I mean, they happen in relative ignorance of each other. And I think for a long time that relative ignorance continued. Um, now there's more awareness across divides. Uh, but on the whole, I feel post-colonial criticism, not everybody, but on the whole, was environmentally blind. It was more about empire, racism was a huge thing, identity, racism, uh, immigration, all those questions were on the table, but not environment. environment. So environmental movement come on, kind of chugged along on its own steam, uh, parallelly and separately. So, and people wrote chapters on new social movements, and there was feminism, and there was environment. Right? And postcolonialism was not quite a movement except in thought. Mm -hmm. uh, that was part of that uh, those that that era. Then post-humanism came from the awareness <clears throat> that uh, that a lot about the human uh, was machinic or assemblage-like. So on the one hand, you had um, feminist criticisms of uh, the family and kinship in terms of patriarchy. So Donna Haraway's cyborg manifesto celebrated the machinic in a way that she might not today. Mm. Right? Because she saw the cyborg as built on the death of kinship. Right? Um, and um, <clears throat> out of that post-humanism came because there were advances in neurology, in brain studies, um, Damasio's work came later, but there was other stuff happening in neurology, uh, which was suggesting that emotions had neurological basis, uh, which was increasingly. So you, you might say what was happening from the 80s, 90s on was that uh, if you ask the question, "What is a human being?" it was get, getting answered more and more by the sciences. Um, and post-humanism in some ways was an attempt to incorporate all that knowledge of connections between humans and other entities on behalf of a, <clears throat> on behalf of a program that was on the whole about sustainability about developing a sustaining an ethic that would sustain human worlds um, 
And that didn't so much speak to post-colonialism, precisely because post-colonialism was focused more on political questions, like recognition, rights, um, and was more human-centric than post-humanism was. Um, so now again, there's a possibility for the two posts mm. to come together. Um, but as I was saying today, it's a difficult conversation because uh, because translating our sense of connection with other entities into our sense of the political is not easy. Um, so just the gesture of recognizing our connections doesn't make it political. Mm -hmm. um, because I think the political is fundamentally based on a commitment to securing human life. And, and the kind of wherewithal we have developed over 200 years to secure human life has gotten us into a trouble in which human life itself is becoming secure. So there's a lot of need to rethink this whole thing about the connection between how do we rethink rights in such a way as to make it compatible with our connection with other things. So I think Bennett was very honest, Jane Bennett, in saying that this ethic will not solve problems of oppression and slavery and racism. So at the moment we're left with, we're like bilingual people who are speaking different languages in different contexts. Right? So there's a lot of code switching and context switching in our heads, which means we have we negotiate them like a bilingual person negotiates two languages or trilingual three languages, but it doesn't mean that we have a composite language. Uh, so in one context we speak of rights, in another context we speak something else. So I was saying to friends uh, that, you know, um, ulcer specialists have known for a long time that ulcers have to do with bacteria and bacteria inside your body. So they don't have a Lockean conception of your person. But if you're held to the court of law and the court finds you culpable, then culpability is still based on a Lockean view mm -hmm. of your person. Now, a complex society like ours could go on separating these two contexts from each other. Right? So in the hospital, you're non-Lockean. You know, to the doctor, to the judge, you're a Lockean mm -hmm. person. And fine, it's two different contexts. What happens is that when the question of our connectivity to other entities becomes a huge problem for our own existence, then this contextual separation doesn't work so well. Uh, and there's a breakdown. And I think that's where we are. Uh, with this in front of us as, a, as the challenge to thinking. I mean, it's, it's so interesting also that the, um, the temporalities and the historicities, as you've sort of laid them out, between the two, are intersecting and to some degree overlapping, but they're not isomorphic. Right? That's what I was saying. And so exactly. there's, there's a real, there are moments of real tension. Exactly, and right? this is very hard to communicate to people. 
that just because they're intersecting doesn't mean that you can incorporate one into the other completely. So sometimes the criticism I get is people say, um, of a remark I have made in a couple of places in print where I said, look, if you want to know human, what human beings are doing to each other, you have to zoom in and, and have a fine resolution picture. But if you want to know what humans are doing to the planet, you have to zoom out. <laughs> right? And people said to me in criticism, I take the criticism, but that's not enough. You have to say how they articulate in us. But the problem is they articulate as Venn diagrams do, as, as overlaps. They don't become the same problem. Whereas a lot of political people think we have to find a solution to the geological in our own lives. You don't live as long as the geological lives. <laughs> and that's why I was saying that we, we have become good at breaking down planetary processes, interfering, throwing the spanner into the works. But we are not equally good at fixing them because they fix themselves over a long period of time. And it's not clear that we will be in charge of this place for millions of years. So uh, Howard attempts to compose a commons for the Anthropocene proceed in a context of, re- of this kind of relentless antagonism, or at least moments of antagonism um, that wax and wane in intensity over resources in the world at large, as well as over the terms of public and intellectual conception. So, go back to the beginning of the question again. So, how would attempts to compose a commons right. for the Anthropocene? <clears throat> how would those attempts do? Um, how would attempts to compose a commons yeah. proceed in a okay. context proceed. of relentless proceed. antagonism? I was looking for the verb that connected the two parts of the sentence. Yeah, yeah <laughs> over resources on yeah, the yeah, one sure. hand and the terms of public and intellectual yeah. conception and composition on the other. So, to begin with a concrete example, David. Last October I was in Australia for two weeks and I was reading Indian newspapers as I do on the net. And the headline in the Bengali newspaper struck me. It said, 31 hills, and I kid you not, 31 hills have gone missing in Rajasthan. What's mean? So I followed up, and I followed up on the report out of which the news item was uh, constructed. <coughs> 31 hills have been raised to the ground. They show up on topographic maps. They don't exist. And then I was watching a report on the eastern Indian state of Meghalaya, where a larger number of hills have been raised to the ground. Some of it to supply marbles to the building boom in Bangladesh. Some of it to supply marbles and things to Indian middle class people. Um, <clears throat> So the resource question is terrible. And really we are, we've come back to the world of extractive capitalism, as people say this. I mean, with a vengeance. I mean, when I look at Indian, um, I mean, there is on the one hand a civilized part of the industry. In India, it's like the IT industry. You meet the IT industry leaders and they're well-spoken, educated people setting up good universities, you know, those such people. And then, the other end of this Indian capitalism, I'm giving you India as an example, because it's an emerging nation. Other end, 
is the resource industry, red in tooth and claw. That's where murders happen. Information seekers are just bumped off, right to information activists are bumped off. Now, it's not like these two are not connected. Because all the material you need to make the, you know, the touchscreen of your computer, that comes from extractive capitalism. If you, if you look at the history of rare earth material, you'll see that the frontiers will be moving from one country to another. They go into a country exhausted, they go into another country, then soon they'll be mining meteorites and moon and those sorts of things. So the rare, so the extractive industry, which is ready to employ, and the very civilized IT side of it, they're not unconnected. So capitalism is producing in similar many forms. One is, of course, the extractive industry. P, as I was saying, India is again a good example where uh, about 50% of the people are under 25, 60% under 35, where there's this phenomenon of jobless growth, right? And increasingly even some mining operations are crude, but sophisticated mining operations don't need that many people. And the democracies and electoral politics have to seize the energies of this young people, young population. So in the West, now some people argue that gamification, literally lots of games, are being provided to working class kids. In India, lynch mob has almost become a game for the unemployed people. You know, catching a Muslim guy because he's taking some cows or buffalo and killing him on the pretext that this has become a game. People enjoy doing it. They, they brag about it unless they're caught. Some one or two get caught out. So these, so the antagonism you talk about is very real and, and is fundamental to the growth that we are experiencing. Because the growth is producing a middle class and the demand for housing of this middle class, not just for housing, but for investment purposes. I mean, housing, gold, stock, these have become alternative portfolios for this middle class, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things I notice in India every time I go back, most of my well-to-do friends own four or five apartments, if not more. They are most of the season empty. Most of the year they're empty. Or they go and have parties in, a, uh, you know, in one of the fancy apartments. But they're basically invested money. Not for living, so they're not living needs. So I see this all as of being all over peace. So in thinking about this, I, I was I was being very serious when I was saying that late capitalism has killed the political. Uh, it's killed the political in two senses. One is of course that it's endangered human life in general. And therefore, it knows so what happened is the politics of survival is now the politics of the elite. You know, when we were doing post-colonialism, we used to, like if you read Homi Baba's early work, um, or even what he was writing 10 years ago about refugees and migrants, Jim Scott, Weapons of the Weak. So we used to think that survival is an art of politics developed by the dispossessed and the poor. But now I think survival is the political game of the rich and powerful. And it takes many forms, you know, from sending your children overseas to 
violence, you know, whatever. Um, so it, in, 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 in this situation, conceptually, we have to obviously rethink the political without losing its core value. And then in that sense, I demand you remain a humanist. That, that, it, that the securing of human life becomes an... It's not a proposition you can... It remains non-negotiable. So I'm, I'm not somebody advocating death of the species. But at the same time, what Roy Scranton talks about learning to die in the Anthropocene, that little fine book, which gets misread by people. What he's actually trying to talk about is how to live in the Anthropocene. So he says, learning to die is to learning to live with the knowledge that the civilization we are attached to and valued is in decline and is not sustainable. So what it means is that the flying around I do, which I enjoy, without coming there, coming here, meeting new people, just today talking to guys, I got some new ideas, I was telling excitedly my wife about how this really helped me listening to the global panel to connect with my work with post current work, etc., etc. This is very stimulating, but, but you know, this stimulation is made possible by a certain kind of capitalism for which all these flights and conferences are affordable. There's money to do this, right? And that's why I was saying this is the life form we're attached to. We enjoy this flourishing. And yet we know that this is not sustainable. So what are the life forms we can create which are about withdrawal? And you know, it, it, it's not not happening. So today, when we were eating, downstairs, Ruth, the young Brazilian woman sitting next to me, said, see, we talked about all this and now we're eating from plastic bags. And I said, you know, this has struck you and maybe in the next conference you won't use plastic bags. Now, this does not solve the problem, but you see, these are small steps of withdrawal that people will take in individual lives, for which people will put pressure on their means. And at certain points there will be trade-offs. Um, the academic elite in the U.S. I mean, there will be trade-offs between our prosperity and, and, and sustainability. There's no, no question. And when one, when that trade-off works for a particular person, is it for a government or a people? These are political questions open. But I, I find it. That's why I was going to a fundamental question, saying that the political need to be rethought on the basis of a new political and philosophical anthropology, in the sense that not from the position of the general cultural uh, sense and sensibility, which has been extremely enriching, that uh, which is kind of that the world has meaning for humans in terms of its beauty, whether you think of it religiously or whether you think of it purely in a spiritual, even atheist manner, but you think this the Buddhist idea that if God hadn't made man, if I hadn't been made, who would appreciate the beauty of this world, right? And I, and I was saying that's the basis of both secularism and political thought. You know, that somehow I'm special. This is all, if you remove that and say, okay, I'm another animal connected to the other animals, and there's a Darwinian history of which I'm part, and yet, given my history, given my consciousness, I'm also committed to my fellow creatures, and, and in, in which I want to live civilly, civilly, with these people, sustain these numbers of people, how to do this. We are in a bind. So one fundamental premise would be, 
Namartha Sen says this, and I think he's right. He says, going forward, we need more energy, not less. Now, to get that from sort of renewables will take at least a few decades. And who knows how the climate crisis will play out <laughs> in those decades, right? Uh, and what other crisis will, will play out? Because even if you solve the energy problem, there are many other problems of uh, extinction, our consumption, scaling all this down at the same time. So we have to move onto a very different social model, um, of which when people talk about the collect, the making a forming a, a commons of the human and the non-human or this connective, I think that people are giving us a sense of where we where we ought to be. And that is a good perspective from which to start. But the pathway towards it, there are different pathways and they're open and they, unfortunately, will not be non-conflictual, as I was saying before. Uh, or as I, as I sometimes say that there may be a rebarbarization of, of the world. Uh, the relative time of peace that many of us have enjoyed since the Second World War, that may not continue. Thank you. That, uh, I, I mean, I, it's, it's so interesting that you brought up the issue of the commons because during your talk, <coughs> I was thinking to myself, what you're posing is a, both a challenge to and the need for a radical reformulation of the Parfitian yeah. philosophy of the commons. Yeah, I've sort of you know, I've been working on this off and on for mm. ten years now, so it's kind of things clarify mm. themselves mm. as I go along. Mm. Um, ten years ago, I used to think I'm working on climate change. Now I think no, it's more than anthrop- what were anthropocene stands mm. for. There's a whole mm. number of mm. exactly. And climate is just right. Uh, I mean, uh, symptomatic. Yeah, right. Exactly. A, a big symptom. Big but, symptom. But I do but, think you know, yeah. that the rich are in the political survival, and that's why some degree of geoengineering will happen. Mm. I think those big technical fixes, they mm. will try. Mm. And uh, and they will have uneven impact on people. Mm. And they will also they'll start another process, a competitive process for powerful nations to acquire those technologies because they will be connected to defense. I mean, you can't create space technology <laughs> without it being linked to defense technology. Yeah, exactly. I mean, all technology. All technology, yeah. Sort of emerges out of DOD, right? Exactly. I mean, so. Yeah. So which I means mean, all the driving technology. So they'll be a competitive world. People will compete for them. The Chinese will make secret, you know, mm. <laughs> engineering copies mm. of these. Things. No, it's mm. not a. It's it's not a good prospect. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, I look forward to your books. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by UCHRI in connection with our Horizons of the Humanities Initiative which is generously funded by the Mellon Foundation. For more interventions on the subject of civil war, visit Foundry, UCHRI's platform for experimentation in the humanities at uchri.org foundry.